Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Folly Coffee Podcast. If you haven't done so already, I ask that real quick here, you just pause, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, and if you've liked any of the previous episodes or this episode, please give us that five-star rating. It helps us greatly. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 99 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Right. I am here with John Ng and Lena Go, owners of, I think, arguably the best ramen in the Twin Cities. If you're not going <laughs> to make that as a bold statement, I, I can be a little more safe and say at least among the best ramen in the Twin Cities. Owners of Zenbox Izakaya, a Japanese comfort food with ramen being kind of the star of the show. And I was reading about your story, you know, on the on the website. And the funniest thing is, as I was reading about it, <clears throat> is it kind of went a little bit to how you met. And then it jumps to, yeah. now we have a restaurant. So right. I'm excited to hear about the whole journey of how you two met, kind of where you're from, how you ended up here. And so why don't I start with Lita? I'd love to hear your story of how you two met. No, no, no. Thanks for, I mean, yeah, this is uh, kind of embarrassing, but thanks for having us, Rob. Absolutely. This is exciting. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Katie at Angel yes, for making yeah. it. That's right. <laughs> Hi, Katie. <laughs> but um, wait, I think, you know, it was 1997 when we, you know, I think that was the time when I was in New Zealand. I lived in New Zealand. I was going to college there. And my brother, uh, who's my younger brother, was like, oh, my gosh, there's internet, and let's set it up. And we had dial-up internet back then. And so I got hooked on to going online because back then, you know, you don't have internet. And now this is a new thing. So I started going into the Microsoft chat. Um, that was like you. everyone has a character. It's a comic character. It's called Comic Chat. Mm-hmm. And we had ICQ. And I, I was like, okay, I've heard a lot of weird stories or like, like weirdos who, you know, <laughs> target like females and stuff that I'm just going to pretend myself and call myself Betty Boop. And I'm just going to go to each chat room and just check it out. I'm not going to say anything. And I started going online and you go into chat rooms where there are Asians or there are like mix of people who introduce themselves. And there comes uh, Ash Deluxe. John. Yeah, that's that's my nickname there. <laughs> yeah, because I was in uh, San Francisco during a time uh, studying architecture, so I spent most of my, my time in my uh, school studio, like day in and day out, like almost twenty four hours a day. And then my only, you know, entertainment was you know after late night when I get done the work's done, and I just get online and I just chat with random people and I just happened to see her name and I thought the name was kind of you know interesting so I say oh that's a cute name so I just you know start chatting with her so to put perspective on it at at this time obviously like online is it's hard to imagine a time where there wasn't the internet or that meeting people online wasn't a thing oh yeah at this time was this something that you were telling your friends that you were doing was this something that was like kind of a lot of people were doing or was it something pretty unique I think everybody was kind of doing it but because the internet wasn't that you know well established back then so we were still using dial up so for for a while we were like let's say you say something and then you pause and wait for somebody to respond to you and say 
Did that, that person really want to talk to me? Well, <laughs> right. So there's yeah. a lot of like, you know, unsure during that time. Yeah, it's. I mean, thinking about it, like this has been like 20 something years since then. So it's like the speed of the internet now is just like compared to back then, dialed up and everything. Because you would get, you know, un- you, you would get, what do you call it? Disconnected. Yeah. If your line is not unstable. good. And right. then someone picks up the phone. Yes. I, I remember growing up as a kid playing right. a game on the computer mm-hmm. and then somebody picks up the phone and goes, Mom, you gotta yeah. turn it off. I'm in the middle of something. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was weird for me and I had to be kind of secretive about mm-hmm. it because it's like, oh, you're going online and meet people and chatting. It's like, are you sure? This, is it safe? You know? So right. that was for me because New Zealand wasn't as... Um, you know, high tech driven as mm-hmm. much as the US. So we're a little bit behind, you know, for, but for San Francisco. It wasn't weird for it me. It wasn't weird. And it was, you know, a major tech yeah. salvage. Yeah, especially place. San Francisco right. being yes. way ahead. And so I'm curious, at what point in your chatting do you figure out that? Lena lives in New Zealand, and you figure out that John lives in San Francisco. For real, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a It robot. took us about six months before we started trading photos of mm. each other. Yeah. You know, I, w- I was like, every day we would go online, and I would see the same person. Like, oh, Ash Deluxe is here, and start chatting. We get to know one another, each other better. And I'm like, okay, this person is kind of real. We talk about who we are, you know, what you know, I'm Asian, I'm from where, you know, what age you are, and we talk about what things we like. And six months later, I said, okay, um, I'm comfortable giving you, sending over, mailing over to you internationally my photo. And that's yeah. how we yeah. officially kind of go went go out together, uh-huh. I guess. Yeah, and, and it wasn't set up like, oh, you have to be here doing this time so we can mm. chat. It was pretty random yes like we the timing worked out right the timing us. was just right for us yes. and and that you know you you obviously was up at 3 or 4 a.m in the morning right. in san francisco and i'm at night 9 or 10 p.m in new zealand so that was kind of like a great timing for us to keep chatting and get to know one another and that went up and his friends came joining the group in the, mm. in a chat room and so it's like okay i kind of joined the dots together and said okay this person is normal he's not a weirdo he's not a psychotic person yeah <laughs> until might, until know. now yeah. <laughs> little did you know yes. so that was uh, that was quite an experience so, right as you're chatting is cuz if i if i read correctly lena you were in finance yes. or a financial student and you were in architecture which right. You know, wouldn't have been my first guess having tasted your rum. Yeah. Is food something you connected on as you're chatting, or is that something that came later? It was not at the beginning. No, no it, it was more about life. We talk about life and, you know, what interesting like. stuff. Yeah. But I've always loved Japanese food, mm. even it, because in New Zealand, um, Jap- we have a big Japanese population and Asian population, and I always loved Japanese food. I don't know why. And John worked. You worked in Japanese. Yeah, restaurants. I was already working in you know Japanese restaurant during that time, but it wasn't something that I would just talk to anybody. Just like, oh hey, by the way, my job is a waiter at <laughs> Japanese restaurant. It's kind of, you know, to me, it's just a side job during yeah. my school time. So I was working ever since I came to the country, which is what uh, when I was fifteen and a half, I started working at Denny's. So that was, was my real restaurant job back then. But since then, I've been pretty much worked through my whole you know, high school and college life in 
uh, food business, I mean, restaurant business. Yeah, when I tasted Zen Box for the first time, I said, I bet he started at Denny's. I can really really taste the Denny's inspiration here. So you're chatting online. About six months, you start to kind of form this online relationship. How far after that until you officially meet? A year. A year. A year. Yeah, Yeah. we we exchanged photos six months later, and then we keep chatting, and then... You know, he was a very poor student in architecture. And, uh, you know, we right. were all working, uh, going full-time school and working part-time trying to save up. And a year later, we're like, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll buy an air ticket, which is very expensive back then, right. to go to San Francisco to meet him for the first time. And um, that was, yeah, uh, 1998 yeah. was when we first met. And I spent most of my money in my school work. I have to, like, you know trash diving to get my materials <laughs> from trash room and all this stuff so making your models yeah yeah so yeah. it was quite interesting back then and yeah. see this is the part on the site when i was reading about the background of Zenbox, where all of a sudden it jumps from youtube meeting to then in 2004 we opened our first restaurant and there's like this Correct. eight year gap and so that's what right. i'm really curious about mm-hmm. because an architecture student a financial student mm-hmm. and now one of the most popular restaurants in the twin cities <laughs> and i'm just trying to fill in the blanks here yeah. and so i'm really curious at what point did the discussion of starting your own restaurant even begin with that background it, it was really you know what hits home was uh doing the financial crisis doing uh, uh the the high tech Bubble bursts. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, in San Francisco. Year 2000. Yeah. Yes. We were, um, basically, John was working in architecture field after he graduated. Because we got married a year and a half, towards two years after we first met. And I moved to San Francisco. And I started working as a, in a, a accounting, uh, in a county department for environmental remediation company who do a lot of uh, governmental uh, contracts with the government. And John was in architecture. Yeah, so we worked there for like five years? Yeah, uh, we worked five seven years. Seven years. Seven years for, for you, yes. For me, yeah. And, and you know, most of, uh, back then when I was in architecture field in San Francisco, most of the work we get was pretty much like huge retails uh, design business like Gap and Old Navy and stuff like that. They were like really you know, expanding left and right during that time. But as soon as the, you know, bubble burst, all the project has stopped. Mm. So all these, you know, small firm that, you know, uh, um, really relying of their jobs was stopped. So a lot of us got laid off during that period of time. Mm -hmm. So that was the time that we were like, okay, we can keep doing this, you know, and we don't know how long it's going to take for the economy to come back. So we're like, okay, what should we do? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. while, while we are kind of struggling, you know, the life in San Francisco. Yeah, we were close to closing on a house um, in the East Bay of San Francisco. And the two days before we closed the mortgage, his boss told him that sorry we have to lay you off and I was bawling at work because we were so hopeful because yeah. you know you you almost close on a mortgage but I think that was a blessing in disguise and that took us on a, a mission to change our life around and um, prior to that we have been visiting Minneapolis um, uh, uh, John's best friend two of John's best friend moved here from San Francisco many years before we did 
um, they actually export soybeans to Japan from Fargo. And we've been visiting Minneapolis, you know, and walk through the Skyway. And we're like, you know what? We love food. We love Japanese food. And John loves cooking. There's no really good Japanese food in Minneapolis. And yeah, at least in Skyway. In, in the Skyway, then. yes. And we're like, you know, let's try it. And we just like decided and pack up and quit our jobs, wow. you know, and like our parents were pissed at us because my dad almost disowned me because he's like, what are you doing? Because in the Asian culture, if you run a, usually restaurant owners are the ones who are uneducated or they do not have the means to work in a white collar yeah, job. It's more like a lower class yes. kind of. Yes. Yeah. And so we're like, you know what? Occupation. We don't have any kids. Let's give it a shot. And we just like pack up and just took a year to to find a location and just did it and lived on you know uh, lived with our friends in Egan. Um, they were very kind and gave us no rent. They, we don't have to pay any rent with mm. them, and they are a business partner as well. So we just and that was in two thousand two, two thousand three when uh, when we decided when we yeah. started the Skyway. And it gave us some time to research and really you know trying to build up the Zenbox brand back then before we engage with the real business world, you know. Yeah, that was our, our first entrepreneurship one-on-one. Um, one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are just talking off mic just before this, just about the effects of pandemic on the, of the pandemic on business and being mid-June now and feeling like we're on the other side here. Mm-hmm. It is the interesting thing that when you're in the thick of something that is almost purely negative, that good things can come out of that. And that I've always said that discomfort provides clarity. And so it, it almost feels like a moment like that where it's yeah. at the time that probably felt like the worst thing that could have ever happened in your life. And then after the fact, you're saying that this was a blessing in the skies, that this this may have been the greatest greatest thing to have happened right. to yes. us. And it's crazy how that that works like that. Yeah, I mean, just like, yeah, we were talking about just that, about the pandemic. It's like thinking about that, we went through three of the financial crisis, the 2000, 2008, and then this one recently in 2020, 2020, yeah. So this is like, yeah, you're right. It gives us clarity whenever you see a, you know, an adversity. And then when you came out of it, you see the clarity of what, which direction you should be going. So having really only the one connection to Minneapolis with your friend that lived here, were you very familiar with the food scene, the restaurant industry in the Twin Cities, or was it just walking around the Skyway noticing that there weren't these great Japanese restaurants out there that kind of inspired the idea? I think we we first came up with our own vision of what we want to form Zenbox at the beginning first. And then, you know, of course, we walk around the Skyway, you know, not only in Minneapolis, but also in St. Paul. And we see what kind of uh, routine of people having, and what kind of what 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 kind of uh, options, uh, options they have? they offer. Mm-hmm. So we were really going in between both the idea of our own and also of what out there during that period before we engaged to a you know brick and mortar restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were basically. We do notice that back then that there was Fujia that was um, in the on the riverside. The oh, I can't remember that name, but Fujia and um, origami. origami were the forefathers of Japanese cuisine in Minneapolis. We right. do know that, and we do know that there, you know, 
uh, sushi was their expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we didn't want to do sushi at all. Mm-hmm. We would, you know, our concept at the forefront of Zen Box, and that was how the name came by, was doing bento boxes. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to provide a healthy meal, which has, which has the protein. The I would rice. say balanced meal. Balanced meal, meal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, balanced meal to uh, to the Skyway uh, folks, the office workers. Yeah. And I'd have to, I would have to imagine, especially in Minnesota, around that time, 2003, 2004, sushi was probably one of the few Japanese foods that Minnesotans probably even knew about right. at the mm-hmm. time. Right. And so d- did you f- feel any uh, like nervousness about potentially introducing the whole other side of Japanese cuisine that Minnesotans and min- uh, people in Minneapolis may not have been aware of? It was a challenge, it, 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 you know, trying to educate, like, what is the bento box? You know, what is... I mean, people will know back then, like... Um, there were some like a combination of Japanese Chinese food in the Skyway, or in general, they would have like fried rice and chicken teriyaki, or coconut shrimp, or cream cheese wonton, that kind of combination. So we do know that um, the consumers in Minnesota in general can be a little like uh, what do you call that? Mixed up or confused about what's Japanese food and what's Chinese food. Yeah. And so it, it took us a while to say, we do want to make sure that it is an authentic Japanese bento box and we want to stay true to it. And the name, even the menu names that we had presented was in Japanese. Um, so it, we, it was a challenge, but it became a, quite a pretty good success, I think, in, the, in my opinion, in the Skyway where people were like, this feel like I'm in New York because this is like a hole in the wall because <laughs> we only have like four or five tables of two, you know, two to four tops, and that was it. And now, th- main thing was doing to go. And I and think for it. the uh, offering of what we provide at, in terms of flavors and you know different you know comfort food level, I didn't really feel nervous about it because I know okay, at one point in life, people are going to try something new. At which point is right, it's up to us, right? So if nobody else pushing that. Your movement forward, mm-hmm. we will never grow, right? Right. Well, especially in Minnesota, because I grew up in, you know, it's like if I put too much black pepper on something, right. like, oh, this is spicy. spicy. Now right. at the point I can't get it. I mean, even though coffee too, right? You know, oh, it's the same exact 20 thing. years ago, who would drink all this different flavor of coffee, you know, different roasting method and, you know, acidity? Who care about those, right? <laughs> yeah, Until exactly. somebody put the step forward and say, hey, I'm doing this. If you guys want to try different thing, come join me or else you always have your choice of, you know, Folgers. your yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's an interesting insight because it's it's almost like in any entrepreneurial journey, you can have every detail planned out, you can have awesome branding, you can especially I'm speaking specifically to food and drink, but there is always going to be a portion that you're placing a bet that what I'm making is good enough Mm-hmm. to drive this thing forward Absolutely. and right. you can have everything in line but you ultimately do have to take that risk and then also if it's not different or if it's not uh like leaning it towards like extreme flavors right. or great right. different flavors mm-hmm. i should say is that it's probably not going to work because if you had said well maybe we should go a little more similar to what right. other people are doing or mm-hmm. may- maybe we should only use menu items and names that people right. are comfortable mm-hmm. with but then why go to Zenbox over any other person right. serving a similar menu item? Right. So, so it's almost like the bigger the risk of flavor you take, the bigger the potential reward. You you just really want to find that you know 
comfort zone or the the line you're trying to draw, you know, in between business and your personal preference, right? Yeah. You know, and and you're not trying to go all out. I mean, you can go as extreme as possible, but does that make sense for business? You know, yeah. so so you you're trying to juggle in between that. What is safe enough? But at the same time, you have something that is different. So that's I think that is the challenging part of being entrepreneurship. Yeah, and so right? it's almost more important to set the minimum of like here's how close we'll get to what people are requesting because. Mm-hmm. If you listen to every single request of every single person that gave mm-hmm. you feedback on your food or for us our coffee, I would tell you we would be like uh, we'd be like a surfboard without a rudder. Right. We wouldn't be able right. to direct ourselves right. at all. Right. Right. And, and so that's a really great insight is to say, hey, no, this is what we do, yes. and we're, we don't do what other people do, right. and th- I, that's what makes people want to come back right. and maybe go out of their way. So when you opened the Skyway location, did you have plans for like another location or the long-term strategy of what you were opening and kind of the, the long-term goal of Zenbox well, or how did you approach it? I think in the beginning when we did the uh, Skyway Zenbox, we had the intention of uh, duplicating the same. It's kind of like we want to be able to open different stores mm. of the same concept. But over time, it became to a point where we like um, – Maybe we should do something different. And John, we've always loved ramen. And, and, you know, before we moved to Minneapolis, ramen has been something that we love eating. And I always wanted to open a ramen shop, you know, even before we have set up the first sandbox. But we just know during that time, the demand, it just wasn't there. It's not ready. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, especially at that time, I think most people, if you told them ramen, they'd be like, yeah, the thing I get for a quarter right? Mm-hmm. and I put right. hot water in and I eat it if my paycheck doesn't come in till next Yeah, week. so that's the, <laughs> that's the business, you know, intake that we, we take, right? Yeah, we know we want something, but it's not ready yet. So might as well to go to a safer route, you know, in, in terms of, you know, offering. So bento is make more sense uh, in terms of sky, at least in Skyway, because... Yeah a lot of people just grab and go during that period of time. So yep. that makes more sense. So that's how we move forward. Yes. And fast forward seven years later, um, after opening the Skyway, is where we start hunting for a second location. And that was where we're financially just a little bit more stable, where we'll be able to do that. And then that was when we found this location on Washington Avenue. And that's where, you know, John was using the Skyway as his laboratory to test all his recipes during, you know, the, yeah. the times when we're not open for, you know, for business in the Skyway. And so we've been testing it out. And then we opened the, um, yeah. the, and, the Washington. And we, we didn't want to go too far away from our original concept in Skyway because we're using the same name. And, you know, in Skyway, we're pretty much, you know, labeled as comfort food, right? Mm-hmm. And we really want to base on that route to move forward. But if we're going to do a just Japanese restaurant, people will have that, you know, uh, idea of, okay, Japanese restaurant, sushi. That's the so, first connection. So that's yeah. why when we set up our Washington location, we we purposely want to call it an izakaya, which is, you know, a different kind of restaurant in Japan, if anybody ever been to Japan. So it's not quite a restaurant. It's more like a pub. It's a gastro pub. Yeah, yes. it's a gastro pub in Japan. Yeah. So you have, you know, different offering, like comfort food offering, but at the same time, it's a place for drinking as well. Yes. So that's the idea we we kind of trying to... Uh, go f- 
Yeah, we're going to move forward. Move forward, yeah. yeah. Because we insist on not doing sushi at all because we're not good at that. Yeah. Uh, we, we have done in the sky with like sushi rolls, just tip, simple ones like California roll, you know, uh, Philadelphia roll, those kind of stuff. Like, But it wasn't, our, it wasn't our specialty. It wasn't our expertise. And why not do something else? And that's why we decided to do that. In the beginning, first two, three years, we have people coming in. When After we opened the second location on Washington Avenue, people come in, look at our menu and say, sorry, I thought you have sushi, but um, I guess I'm sorry I have to go. So we do have that, yeah. but it took us a while, and now like they 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 understand. Just you know, the other restaurants can do what they're good at, and we do what we're good at. Yes, yeah. in small business, that's so important mm. that uh, it's like if if you're gonna serve something and you don't believe that you can do it as mm. well or better than yeah. other people serving it, then you probably shouldn't do it. Because right. then the only thing you can start to beat them on is price. Right. And then if you get into a price competition as a small mm. business, it's not a good strategy right. for the long right. term. So if you can't, if you don't, either the passion isn't there or you're just like, they're better at it than mm-hmm. us, probably not something you right. should do. Right. right. Even though if you want to play safe, you want to make sure you know enough in order to play yeah. safe, right? So to us, it's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, Future is not really sushi here, so let's not even touch that. You know, let let's move forward. But what interesting enough is uh, for izakaya, even though in Japan each izakaya will have their own special, unique you know items that will attract people. So that's the point when we were thinking, okay, ramen. I always wanted to do ramen, so let's just you know, really take care of the ramen and then put ramen within this uh, niche market and see, okay, for this izakaya, ramen is our specialty. Yeah. That's that's how we're starting to, you know, venture out the whole idea of, you know, you know, craft ramen within Zenbox Izakaya. And was ramen very popular at the time that you opened Izakaya or Zenbox Izakaya, I should say? Uh, at first, it was. It's starting to. It's starting yeah. to. Because uh, Masu opened a few months before mm. us, and Masu was going towards that direction. And uh, we, uh, basically, that was the beginning of the ramen trend in Minneapolis. Right, right. And then after that, we have. Um, uh, on Lake and Lindell, Motoi. Motoi. Motoi opened around that same period. So that was basically the 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 primary time. Right. Yeah, because I still have friends that if I say, oh, we got to go grab some ramen, they're like, you're going to go out to eat for ramen? That doesn't even <laughs> yeah. make sense in their head. But for the people that have kind of found out about it, it's almost like this obsession. And finding the best ramen and yeah. it's all about the broth and how are you making it and how are you preparing it. So that's what I'm curious about because I've gone down the deep dive of YouTube videos about mm-hmm. ramen because anytime I taste something new, I go, I got to figure what is going on right. here. And something about the ramen broth, especially when you get a really special bowl like you have at Zenbox, I should say, is... You're like, what is going on here? Because mm-hmm. obviously when you do it with just the water and the MSG yep. powder, right. it's like, okay, this is, it's fine. But then when you taste it, like a really greatly made bowl of ramen, the umami and the depth of flavor and just the, the layers and then just like the warming property, it just, there's so many things that go into it. So how did you approach it? Had you been making ramen in the past at the previous jobs you had, or is this something you took on as a new kind of, um, project well when i was working in san francisco one of the japanese restaurants i worked at 
my boss actually make his own ramen noodle over there. So he served ramen over there. That's He's how. He's actually one of the pioneers of yeah, in ramen San Francisco. concepts in uh, in Bay Area in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. And and he was the one who really inspired me. And you know, I look at you know his flavor profile and also in the ingredient he used. And then I asked him, "Hey, can I do something like that?" And he really encouraged me to do it. Except, don't make your own noodle, because you know he would usually stay up until after the restaurant closed, which is like ten, eleven o'clock at night, and then he start making his noodle until like three a.m. in the morning. And he was saying that you know if you have a chance, find a good noodle making company to produce noodles for you. If you're gonna do that, you know the broth itself, you can really create whatever flavor profile you want. And and that's what I took very seriously from him. That's why you know personally, I mean, unless you are a standalone ramen shop, you know that's all you do. I mean, you can make your own noodles, but. Or for the size of our restaurant, we provide all these different kind of you know food groups. You don't want to make your ramen noodle because you know temperature, ingredients, you know humidity. the humidity, labors are very hard to sustain in yeah. order to make it long term. But as far as uh, making the broth wise, I think you know the main thing is ingredients. You know everything comes from ingredients, and also you know. The knowledge of what kinds of ingredient you want to put in and how long of the time is required to cook per ingredient; those are the most important things. Steps, yeah, yeah, and the, the steps. Yeah, you is is not just throwing everything together in a pot and let it boil. Yeah, yeah, and and everything will have its own cook times. The some of the some of the stuff you put. Put in too early, let's say it will destroy the flavor profile. So, so engaging in between different ingredients within that pot is very critical. It took us a few years too. When in the beginning, when when we first came up with the ramen dishes that we did, we have improved it over time. Yeah. And it's only until when we really was able to get our hands on the good quality femur bones. Mm. Took us about five years, five years to, to find the right the kind source. of bone. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Right. Yeah. In Minnesota, it's not like you can just yeah. reach out to, oh, I'll just reach right. out to my local no. right. uh, ramen right. ingredients. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, because we were only able to get our hands on commodity pork. And we were able, and, and five years later, finally we found Berkshire or Heritage pork bones, which just makes a huge difference in the, you know that stickiness in your mouth feel when you eat, um, when you sleep Slip the uh, sip the soup. Yeah, that's the you know that is the 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 that fav- flavor and that what do you call that the that feel in your mouth that makes a big difference in the quality and the overall the flavor in the broth itself too. The aroma is just like different. That has to be it because there is something that's it's this indescribable quality that right. people think I'm so weird where I'm like no it's like the mouth feels really right. really good. Right. They're like. You're weird. I'm like, yeah, but it's so much better than right. if, you just, if you take shortcuts. Or you right. just, and so I had no idea that something like which type of pork bones you're using for a broth can make such a massive right. difference for it. And the part of pork bones you use in the broth too. I mean, you can't just throw in any pork bones right. in it. A lot of people think, oh, pork, uh, pig head. 
you know, like, because uh, I think I remember John, you were talking about how the pick, the, the quantity or the pro, the proportion the of the ratio of yeah. the bones that you put yeah. in there uh, affects the the aroma and the taste of the broth and even the color, the color of the broth, the, right. the end result right. of that. Because uh, I I think in uh, especially in French cooking, they 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 love to roast their pork first before they make their uh, consomme or, mm-hmm. or broth. But in you know Japanese method, we we don't roast them first. I mean nowadays with a more modern you know uh, uh, ramen shop might do that, but traditionally we don't really roast them. What we do is we clean them as much as we can to get rid of the blood in in the bone first before we throw in the pot, and then we trying to clean or the residues as much as we can. That's why our broth is more like a creamy white mm-hmm. kind of milky uh, uh, in color. So, so that's the big difference between you know I guess Western culture and you know Eastern culture, method you know of method cooking. of cooking. And and I think because in Japanese cooking, the idea of whole Japanese cooking is to really maintain or to enhance the natural flavor out. So that's why when you go to Japanese restaurant, most of the you know uh, authentic Japanese dishes are not strong in flavor, but rather than really bring the natural flavor out from the ingredients. Mm-hmm. So that's that that's is the same as ramen. So that's what we are trying to do. We we trying to use the uh, tradition traditional method with uh, different ingredients. Really, so once you have that knowledge. You know, whatever ingredient you get, you approach the same way. It should be the same. So w- one thing I'm fascinated by, and I've said this in the past, is when I know about something and I have no idea why I know about it. And Zenbox is a great example yeah. that someone's like, where's the best ramen in town? And before I'd even been there, I'd right. been like, well, I haven't been there yet, but I know Zenbox has amazing ramen. And then, of course, I went there and I was like, well, I don't know why I know this, but however, I found out they were right. Yeah. And so I'm curious if it maybe it happened in the Skyway or maybe it happened with the new location. At what point, and if you've had this point, do you feel like it started to gain momentum and it started to become kind of known in the Twin Cities food scene? I think it's the point that when we were start doing uh, special ramen every weekend, mm-hmm. yes, that was the time that we know, oh, people are really craving for it. Because I, I, we will start launching a weekend special ramen, so which we usually make a special ramen only serve for Friday and Saturday service. And we were like, oh, let's see how it goes. So, but every time I make a special ramen every weekend, I will sell out. And that's the time when we were looking at each other and say, okay, I think people are really craving for ramen. Because otherwise, you know, I wouldn't sell out. I mean, no matter how good you are, people will not like keep coming every weekend just to get your ramen. Mm. Yes. And and of course, you know, there was... 
you know, we have our staple, tonkotsu ramen and kimchi ramen, which are our two most popular ones. And we keep running out of broth because we could not keep up with cooking the broth because it takes 18 hours to mm. 20 hours to cook the broth. So we would sometimes, we would like towards 8 or 9 o'clock, we would run out of broth and our customers would be like, why are you out? I came all the way <laughs> from Wisconsin for your ramen and you are out. And they were not happy about that. Oh, we have customers mm. come all the way from Texas and then we ran out of broth and then they they get really pissed really, off too. I would be, I would be so mad. Yeah. And that would be the last night that they're staying in Minneapolis and they came all the way for that. And that was the point where we're like, okay, you know what? We are kind of making a difference here. Yeah. And and then John was kind of getting bored of just doing the same thing. Mm. And he wanted to explore because tonkotsu broth is like the ultimate favorite flavor in America. Because the you know it's intense, the richness, it's, old, it's rich, and creaminess. but we wanted to explore into more things like the shoyu ramen, which is the lighter broth, like chicken broth, clear broth, the shio one, which is the salt base. Yeah, and we tried different kinds of like dry ramen, brothless ramen. We want yeah. to try different things, and and the weekend special was the perfect opportunity for John to really like showcase what we know, and also at the same time learn as well to educate yeah. and educate the you know Minneapolis consumers and our friends and you know and guests that there are other types of ramen that you can try and it's a good way to test out the market too you know in a business sense it's like you you know what is popular what is not yes. and then we just you know in the future you never know if we're ever going to open a ramen shop we might you know take whatever we have back then for a special and then Yes. make it as a stable for Minnesota. So that is something that we always keep that in our mind while we're doing the special also. Yeah, it's a, it's a way to test the waters. And what I heard you yeah. say that really resonated that I think is a really good sign or at least like an exciting sign for me is that you said we wanted to experiment with new things as well. Yeah. I think you see a lot of restaurants, like every fast food chain, they just go, what do people want? Okay, we'll start serving that now. And it's like, okay, well, they didn't want to make that. They're just making it now because there's a market demand. But mm -hmm. to hear that, you're like, we wanted to experiment with different types of broth and serve it to people and continue to push those boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's where I find the most excitement in food and drink is when people are doing something and it's more or less like, this is what we want to do. And we think you're going to love it if you love it yeah. nearly as much yes. as we do. Yeah. And it's, 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 well, that's why I love this podcast is there's like all these different similarities between wildly different businesses, but we're doing similar thing with like these limited yeah. online coffee releases we're mm. doing is we're roasting a Kona coffee this week mm. and I'm terrified of it because it'll be $50 for right. 10 ounces of coffee. Right. And that's about twice the price of anything we've ever tried to charge. Mm. And somebody's like, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, we wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, <laughs> it was the same thing during the pandemic. Yeah, last year when we did, we brought in the, the A5 Wagyu. And this I is- I post about that. Yeah. Yes, that was a, it was a $2,000, um, three, Piece of three pieces of Wagyu that we brought in. And I was scared shitless, pardon my thing. <laughs> I'm like, John, are we going to be able to sell this? Because this is a lot of beef and a lot of money. And we're going to charge $45 a bowl. And people are going to bring them home and cook them themselves. We're going to give them cooking instructions on that. Are we going to sell? First three hours, we were sold out. Yeah. <laughs> that blew us. That really blew us away. But that's what, that's part of the pivoting, you know. Yeah. You, you, you try, you know, within that last year was really, everybody was stuck at home for a long time, right? 
So any one of us as a business person, we know, you know, we want to bring something different and exciting and exciting to keep our industry going. You know, and and if you if you just keep serving the same old thing over and over again, people is going to forget you, or 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 people will not even want to come out. You know, and so our idea was okay, even though we spend like. So much money during the worst time in our financial, you know, crisis in within our Middle company, of a pandemic. right? And we were like, okay, this is worth it. This is worth it to to let us do something different. Why we can provide high quality of ingredients for for people to cook at home and eat at home. So mm-hmm. I yeah. think it's turned out great. I think your Kona coffee will be. Yeah. yeah, well, especially with something like Wagyu beef that it seems to be kind of diluted in the U.S. because Niall over at Hewing Hotel was telling me a little bit about Wagyu and like real authentic Japanese right. Wagyu. It comes with a certificate. Mm-hmm. You know everything right. about that. I mean, he's like almost everything you see in the United States is like, yeah, it might be the same breed, but it's not the same as how it's right. done in Japan. It's like that's the only true authentic. And so just to be able to show that to people and have mm-hmm. them have that experience and maybe taste that next to a cut they got at a butcher locally right. and realize the differences between that. It just further pushes what you're trying to do mm-hmm. with Japanese cuisine, which is amazing. Right. And and I think the uh, big part of it is also education too. I mean, as we, as a, as a restaurant owner and also a chef, I believe in order to let your customer like our food is by educating them what we are trying to do here. Yeah. Just like simple ingredients, like the Wagyu beef is like, you have so many different kinds. You have domestic one, you have, you know, the import Japanese one, even though the Japanese one have so many different varieties. But at the same time, you have to tell them, hey, I have this this really rare... Uh, uh, the olive Wagyu. Olive Wagyu that even Japanese restaurant have a hard time to get it in hand. <laughs> so is that different enough? And those are the breed that is really, really special in Rare. a small yeah. farm from Japan. So that make it even more special for us, I mean, or for the general public to say, hey, okay, not only that they bring in this special Wagyu beef, but this is a special Wagyu that is so rare to the point that not even the domestic restaurant can get it. Why not to try it? Yeah. You well, know, it's, it's, it's a very subtle difference, but uh, intention is really big mm. in food, especially. That, right. What's the intention of them charging me this price? Or what's right. the, and the intention is that we want to push the boundaries and we are excited to bring this in and we have the excitement. I mean, it's, I, I literally feel like I'm talking about coffee right now. Yeah. <laughs> We're excited to bring this in. And so, hey, am I getting charged $45 for a bowl of ramen or $50 for a, uh, a canister of coffee because they're trying to make more money and they have a big following and they know they can yeah. charge us and enough people will purchase it? Or is the intention that the ingredients are that good or the coffee is that price right. because of what it right. is? And that's why we're being charged. And it's it, the second you start to kind of flip and go, hey, let's see how much we can charge our customers. Mm-hmm. Right, that can flip very quickly. I know, and and sometimes you know, even though you get those ingredients, in, it's you know the profit margin is even lower. Yes, yeah. the <laughs> right? higher the higher the cost of that product, the lower the profit margin. But we still do it. I mean, because we have the passion of it, yes. and we we know this is worth it. That's why we do it. Otherwise. Yeah. 
you know, I can get the cheapest material and say, hey, buy it or leave it. Right. You know, this is like that olive wagyu that we got. We, you know, we charged forty nine dollars for a bowl, and that was a two three ounce uh, cut of olive wagyu, and we could charge a hundred dollars, but mm. we didn't. Because if we base on the normal profit margin of thirty percent, uh, you know, a least. typical uh, menu item, it would have cost us. Uh, you know, we would have yeah. priced it at a hundred dollars, but we didn't. We wanted to provide it a, a point where we just break even, or just you know, like make a little bit out of it, because we do want to showcase that we want to provide that experience to our guests. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny talking to other food business owners because it's the same thing. You go, oh. It's, this can be fifty dollars. We must be making a killing on this. Yeah, this, yeah, it's by, killing by, us by launching this product. I am lowering my overall business right. margins. Right. But at the end of the day, is I've ne- the, the, I've never had a one hundred percent Kona coffee, and quite honestly, I'm excited to be able to have it roasted by Jeff and be able to taste it and have that experience. So I was right. like. Jeff goes, well, what if it doesn't sell? And I go, I still want to do it. Yeah. Right. So it's, right. it's so funny. So right. the, the, the similarities that uh, I, I think that's why people are eager to buy these things is because it's it's clearly not a money grab. It's clearly a pursuit of passion mm-hmm. and wanting to do it yourself. And to do that during the middle of a pandemic is that's yeah. a that's a move. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was definitely. Well, it's always, it, you know, business is always taking risks anyway. Right. It doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. when, you know, it's just the right risk you're trying to take at this at the certain period of time yeah, and so the less risk you take over time the it's so hard to keep the attention of a customer and so to not innovate and to not try to push the boundaries of what you're doing yourself yeah and what you enjoy that customer eventually is going to find somewhere else or mm-hmm. find someone else that's got that's pushing the boundaries further i mean if you don't want to take risks might as well to buy you know franchise just to <laughs> run the overall yeah. daily menu you know that makes money and it doesn't require it's you safer, to do a lot. Yeah. It's safer. I mean, why do we do all this thing? You know, I mean, I could have just like run my menu year round and not doing anything special. Just take care of what I have now. But I think this is more than just business. It's more because of our passion too. And that right there, I've tried to explain to people that oh, it must be so fun to just work for yourself. And I go... <laughs> The, the, the reason I'm able to keep going is because I am genuinely obsessed with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And like at the end of the day, that keeps me going because it's like this is awesome that as much work and as much stress as, right. as we all face in a given mm-hmm. week, you can always lean back on that and be right. like, I am genuinely love what I am putting out. And I say it that way because we don't always, I, I'll speak for myself here, but I'll say I don't always love what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes Good. a lot of work, but I think some people go, well, I want to work for myself, and uh, and but I don't really care what it's about. I don't care what I do. I just mm-hmm. want to start a business and do it. And you run into this interesting trap where when it gets to a certain size that you're able to actually be a business, you've now created a new job for yourself mm-hmm. doing something that you don't care about again. Right. right. <laughs> and that, that's always an interesting right. thought. Then the franchise is a great point to bring up because mm-hmm. you go, hey, if you just want to work for yourself... That's an option, but it seems it seems like there's almost um, like an ego tied to having your own thing. But right. I will make the strong argument mm-hmm. that I go the stress you'll have to encounter to make that happen, unless you're genuinely obsessed or passionate. Right. I in, agree. In small business, especially. you know, even, even though you have ego, you have to able to sacrifice and you know take that risk, you know, in order to get the return. 
And yeah, we all are ego in 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 the sense of what we own. But at the same time, is if you don't have the ego, why even do it, right? Yeah. We we constantly talking to our own angel and evil every day, right? Yeah. Within our mind, it's like, should we do that? No, we should do that. But because it's struggle, yeah. yeah, it's a struggle every day. Okay, business first or my passion first? It's like, <laughs> yeah, every day is like. Like well, then the, the pandemic, I can tell you, made one side of that argument oh, yes. one, have a little bit of a louder voice as you're going through it. And so mm-hmm. th- 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 I had the same conversation with Jeff that I was like, you, you know what will get us through this year? Let's just do some cool stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's do any. Yeah. I don't care if we break even. As long as we can get the business going, yeah. we need to do cool stuff because I personally need something to yeah. be excited we about. Were, we were this close to just like walk out of this industry during a pandemic. It was just so close to it where it's like, what is the point? You know, what is the point of going on? There was like roller coaster ride of like, I hate this. I can't do this shit anymore. Or like there was a point where we're like, you know what? Okay, let's keep going. Let's just keep going and keep going and see what's at the end of the tunnel. And and that was where if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you will come to a point where you would just burn out completely and just like walk away from it. And that question of what's the point exactly yeah. becomes stronger and stronger. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. They were, I mean, like a lot of people envision that, like, oh my God, it's so glamorous to own a restaurant. It's like, no, you do not see the ugly side of you having your staff not show up. You have to step in and become the dish, dishwasher or the toilet is over flooding. It's flooding and you have to clean up poop in the bathroom and you are the first one to jump in to clean that. People don't see all those things as an ownership that you have to do. Well, and also your mindset too. How can you, you know, within that struggling period that you reset yourself, mm-hmm. that's, that is the time when you step back and say, okay, I can go 100 miles per hour, but this is the time for me to hit a brick really hard and rethink, you know, which way should I go? That's the time when we make that ultimate decision of, okay, what can we do if we do this in, in order to make it work? Or I just give everything up and go back and say, hey, you know, society consume me. <laughs> I just, you know, give up. I came up with this really, this is probably, the, this is probably a little too transparent, but I came up with this weird coping mechanism where I would almost try to go third body, like look at myself mm. in this situation and be like, all right, it, with the, especially during the all of 2020, mm-hmm. looking at the situation and the, this person that's me in the situation and going, uh, most people would probably not want to continue doing this, right? but will this person keep doing it? Mm-hmm. And just convincing myself yeah. that I'm that person. Yeah, <laughs> right. It was almost this interesting thing of like, some people are probably screaming in their headphones right now, Dis- disassociative. And I'm like, okay, but right. it's it no, healthy and it worked. And so that was kind of the mindset I took that I go, it, as long as I can convince myself mm-hmm. that I'm not the person that's going to step back from this situation and push forward, mm-hmm. then I've convinced myself and then I do it and yeah. then it proves itself. And right. then you get through it and then you go, oh, we can make it through that. Right. And and the point also is, you know, everybody is su- suffering and struggling to which extent you're willing to take that, you know, that step and say, okay, I don't think I'm suffering anymore, not as much as some other people, but I still can strive forward. So that's the mentality we finally get, you know, It's like we're not at the worst. Basically, everyone has that self 
you know, self-centered way of thinking, I'm at the worst point of my life. Yeah, why but does this you, happen to me? Exactly. Right. Why does this always right. happen to me? Right. And, and so you have to start looking at, okay, maybe we're actually not worse off than some of the people in other parts of the world or other parts of the country. And then we're like, okay, you know what? Let's focus back and get back on our feet and keep going. And luckily we have one on each other to like really give us that like prep up and positive talk. And cause it was, it was pretty bad on me. I mean, 2020 was yeah. really, really negative effect on me. I was at a point of like just giving up, but luckily John really like, okay, just keep going. We can do it. And another thing I like to think about is so when things in business are really rough, I go, okay, Rob, if, some, if, if you were on day one of starting the business and someone opened your door and laid in a, the exact situation you're in right now and said, would you rather be at day one or would you like to have this current, this business here in this situation? I'd be like, well, I want that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so it's all about perspective. And so if someone yeah. came to me with Zenbox in the middle of a pandemic and said, hey, you know, do you want... This business is for you if you want it. I'd be like, hell yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Zen buy? This is really? And so it's, it's, it's easy to think about the past and be like, oh, things are so much worse. Mm-hmm. But you go, it's just like you said. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of situations that could be worse. And then just knowing Zen box and right. what you've done. And mm-hmm. I, you, it's it, in my mind, I go, well, of course they're going to come back. Have you tasted it before? Yeah. <laughs> but it, uh, you and I did have that conversation where we're like, the thing I miss by far from a dining experience is ramen. Because... A lot of other types of food, you you can do a pretty good job at replacing that experience mm. with the at home right. experience. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you did a, a as good of a job as you can do that with like the the wagyu beef and the c- cooking at home instruction. Mm-hmm. But like that experience of ramen, where it's one of those foods that's set down in front of you and you just consume it immediately, right. and it's like the whole experience. It was one of the dining experience I miss most. Yeah, yeah. I remember we were just talking about that when we first met last week, and. That was the reason why, like, we're talking about pivoting during the pandemic is we have, pre-pandemic, we never allowed, I guess, you know, because we allowed to go ramen. Because it's just the quality of it, it's just, it, it deteriorates the moment you take it home to put it together, no matter how best we package it. But because of the pandem- pandemic, we can only do takeout. That's the only way we can fulfill to stay alive as a business to do takeout ramen and like you said you know we, we you know it's just different now i i hope people you know have been doing takeout ramen for a year and a half now almost from zen box and maybe they can now tell the difference when Why you bring it we... home it's not the same then having it yeah. right the moment that it was made and right to you on your table and you would slip it in seven minutes and that's the way how ramen should be consumed yeah. And why did we insist on not yes. doing to take home? I mean, for business end, it doesn't make sense, right? If, if somebody wants to get to go, oh, you know, of course, you're going to sell more. But why do people, we not yeah, do it? It doesn't make sense from a business point of view, right? Mm-hmm. People just have to realize that not because of business we want to do this. It's because of the ensure of quality of our ingredients and 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 our dish. <laughs> I know I just keep paralleling this to coffee, but ground coffee is the same thing. It's, right. how, it's how I feel about that. There's a lot of people right. that say that it's a stupid business decision not to offer ground coffee, mm-hmm. and I go, but that's just one step closer to what we don't want to be doing. Yeah. And so that, that it's it's 
interesting to hear all these parallels that throughout this entire mm. time. And it's, uh, it, it, it's no wonder hearing you talk about ramen, why it is so much better. And that's, that's what is interesting about humans is like taste is an intrinsic thing. I can't explain to you why right. your ramen tastes the way it does. I don't know how to make ramen. I've never right. made it myself in an authentic way. I've made it the 25 cents <laughs> one that you make in a minute in the microwave. Well, to me, my best example is I always use burger to compare with ramen, right? Because it's similar. Like burger is such a comfort food in Western world and ramen is such a comfort food in Japan. And to me, it's like, will you, do you rather eat your Juicy Lucy at the place than taking it home? Of course, you're going to eat it at the place. It's just different. Yeah, when you take better. it home, it tastes different. Because that dish is designed to eat in in house, you know, and and it's it's not a complicated, you know, dish, right? It's just buns and burger, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when you think about the the taste behind it, that will trigger you why they do what they do, right? And the the way because in the in the uh, traditional ramen shop, they will heat the bowl. The bowl will be steeped preheat. in hot water or preheat so that it will maintain the heat of the broth yeah. when it goes to you. Yeah. And there's a reason why they they um, put aroma oil on top because that retains the heat from the broth from losing or uh, from escaping from the whole broth. Because the Japanese consumers are very, very, um, what do you call that? They, they, the the temperature of the broth is ultimately the most important thing right. because the moment that it sits too long sitting on the table, it becomes cool, uh, you know, cooler. It doesn't. It's not as hot. The cons- Japanese customers would want you to reheat it or make a new bowl. Mm. That's how. That's how important that is. There's a lot of nuances behind the way why a simple bowl ramen is made. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's just like you. Like people were. S- laughing at us or they were we had discussions with other business owners like why are you not doing takeout ramen that was before the pandemic and we could have made more money by like selling more ramen for to go and there were customers calling us and saying hey my son is sick and he can't come out to eat and he loves your ramen and we're like i'm so sorry i can't do it to go that's the reason we could have made more money by doing that but we didn't so once you have to picture that this is the first time anybody has ever tried Zenbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if that first experience ever is to go, they might say, yeah, this is pretty good. Like right. this is a really good ramen mm-hmm. as opposed to having it in person served exactly how it's supposed to. That separates it from what everybody else is doing. And that's such an important thing to keep in mind is that even as popular as you are, there's still a lot of people that have never, never tried mm-hmm. Zenbox. Yeah. I think about the same way with our customers. Is I try to picture that every person that's experiencing is experiencing for the first time. And to not let it be, oh, well, they probably had it before. They know it's not yeah. as good mm-hmm. as it was or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I, the next question I have to ask is, I know you've got, you've got the patio open now. Mm-hmm. Do you have a plan in place for reopening indoor or the full experience? We it is in the works. Uh, we're actually planning to remodel our bar to make it more efficient. Mm. So that we're hoping maybe by end of July or August is when we will um, start providing indoor dining. 
Well, I will be one of the first ones there. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I really appreciate you both coming in. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So many great insights and to hear what you're doing over there. It just makes it so much more obvious as to why it's as good as it is. And I I can't say I'm surprised by that because I, I don't think that I could taste something that good and have it be somebody who's like, oh yeah, I just we just make it and people like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that makes both of us right. We we know why we want to do this right, and and it's not just pure profit. I mean, it's not ultimately not. it's our ego, right? <laughs> That's our conclusion, right? It, it is our ego. And I, I think uh, if anybody wants to uh, make a lot of money, I wouldn't recommend uh, yeah. food and beverage. Mm-hmm. The, oh, yeah. Uh, the food and beverage mm-hmm. industry. There's probably right. a lot uh, a lot easier ways right. to go about it <laughs> exactly. with this amount of work. Yeah. But really nice to meet you both last week. So Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I will end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day. <laughs>